0: Good morning. This is Nira Izakovich from the Applied Ethics podcast at UMass Boston, and my guest today is Dana Miranda of the University of Connecticut. Hi, Dana. Hi, Nira. How are you? Good, good. Uh, Dana is a a doctoral student in philosophy at UConn. Dana is working on um, mental health uh, in uh, communities of color. I'll let you say uh, more about that, and has also done some really a uh, fascinating uh, work on uh, public monuments and uh, memorials. Uh, so Dana, why, why don't we start with uh, you telling us a few words uh, about yourself and uh, what you've been working on.
1: Yes, um, so again, I'm from Brockton, Massachusetts, which is down the road, 30 minutes from Boston. And that's gonna have direct implications on our podcast today as we talk about mm-hmm. Faneuil Hall. Um, but in terms of my work, it is very situated in the communities I'm part of. So, being part of the Brockton community, being part of the Cape Verdean diaspora, has impacted my work and my dissertation. So, I'll be looking at um, suicide and depression and well being in the Cape Verdean and larger Africana diaspora to really see how, um, as Black individuals live in anti Black and colonial worlds, what, is, what impact does that actually have on their mental state? So how does the social environment actually impact how we think of sanity, how we think of normality, how we think of well-being, how it tinges that. Huh. And that also impacts the work I do on monuments. So because I'm part of these communities, I wanted to see what are the physical representations that we can see in um, that really memorialize how we are here. So when we look at monuments such as the Bunker Hill Monument, or even as we talk about Faneuil Hall, what connection do they actually have to the living communities they're part of? So it really made me want to explore as an undergrad, what do we even do by monumentalizing things? What does that process look like philosophically, politically?
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. And um, as Dana said, uh, what we're going to be focusing on uh, today is the larger public monuments debate that has come to prominence uh, in this country uh, since the violence in Charlottesville uh, last year, but specifically in the context uh, of our community here, uh, the debates that have been swirling around Faneuil Hall in uh, uh, downtown Boston. in addition to his work on this in the past, Dana is now a fellow at our ethics center and has uh, been uh, the one of the chief forces behind the project that we've been working on on uh, creating a monu- creating a curriculum for uh, public schools to take up uh, uh, the monument debate. And in fact, uh, a program that has been using a curriculum that Dana created uh, just uh, concluded uh, in the Boston Public Schools, a summer, uh, a summer program. So thank you for that as well, Dana. Thank you on the project. Absolutely. Um, so uh, Dana, maybe uh, we can start off by, uh, if you could say a few words of uh, background uh, on Faneuil Hall. Uh, who Faneuil was, uh, why he was important enough to name that place over him. What happens for listeners who are out of Boston? What happens in Faneuil Hall? Why that's so central to the life of the city?
1: Yeah. So, in terms of one of the questions you asked, are why was why is this Peter Faneuil so important to have a whole hall named after him in downtown Boston? Well, if you look at the history. In terms of his historical importance, um, not so much. He inherited his wealth from his uncle and this inherited wealth along with his own operations, such as trading in tobacco, trading in slaves, um, allowed him the wealth to build Faneuil Hall. And so he built this hall and it is actually completed a few months after he died. So again, we have the namesake. Um, he donated the money. He, ha- he laid down the construction plans. And so now we have Faneuil Hall in Boston. Now, the significance of Faneuil Hall is not directly tied to Peter Faneuil, but really to the momentous events that actually happened there. So throughout history, especially in Boston history, we have Faneuil Hall being used as a meeting ground of um, our founding fathers. Um, we have abolitionists. We have um, even Boston. Um, mayoral candidates, Boston, um, senators, it's just been a meeting ground, a central meeting ground. And so in terms of that history, um, one of my favorite um, historical facts about Faneuil Hall are the 13 steps represent the 13 original colonies. Um, But that idea that Faneuil Hall is significantly tied to liberty, it has a nickname, the cradle of liberty, is because during Boston's revolutionary period, such as the Boston Massacre. Um, When five individuals were shot down by British troops and murdered, this Faneuil Hall was a site of deep, um, deep contention. It's actually where they agreed to have protests. It's where um, John Adams and Sam Adams, Sam Adams in particular, made momentous speeches arguing against the British. So really is a meeting ground to say like, hey, in terms of British rule, is a great site of fomentation. And then if we're moving into the um, 1840s, we then have abolitionists playing on this trope of the cradle of liberty. So we have um, individuals such as Frederick Douglass and one of my favorite um, in his speech is Theodore Parker talk about, well, if this is the cradle of liberty, how do we become basically the puppets of Virginia? And Theodore Parker talks about this a lot about How, when we're um, really against this Fugitive Slave Act and we have these states' rights saying that there's no slavery in Massachusetts, how can we let um, an individual, uh, specifically African-Americans, be taken from Massachusetts? How are we beholden to the South? And so throughout Boston history, we have Faneuil Halls being served as a site where liberty is broadcasted, where liberty is defended. And so for me, that's this great historical significance of Faneuil Hall. And now you have like the trail of, um, the Freedom Trail, sorry, the Freedom Trail in Boston where all students go and walk down and you end up at Faneuil Hall. Or you have students graduating at Faneuil Hall. Or we have immigrants being naturalized at Faneuil Hall.
0: Right, like myself, for example. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's where I got my citizenship. So because of this history as the Cradle of Liberty, it becomes one of Boston's signature, most famous tourist attractions, one of its main uh, symbolic sites. Um, how does the current controversy around the the name of the place begin? What's, what's the larger context?
1: So um, I think for many people um, that are in the, Boston, greater Boston area, or grew up in Boston, I, I didn't really know who Peter Faneuil was. I knew what Faneuil Hall was. I'd been to Faneuil Hall, but I didn't really know his history. It was just a name. Um, and so it wasn't until I was in my mid-20s that I actually like, hey, who is this Peter Faneuil? And then you look up the history of, well, this wealth um, that provided the materials, that provided the, fo- the founding of the Cradle of Liberty was based on, like most things in the country, slavery. So how do we reconcile ourselves to this truth? That the cradle of liberty was built on funds derived from slavery. And in July, um, as far as I know, I'm sure there has been protests long before this, um, but the New Democracy Coalition founded by Kevin Peterson um, really argued forcefully that, hey, if Peter Faneuil owned slaves, and this is the cradle of liberty, and this is the main, like a huge tourist site in Boston, Do we not have to do something to reconcile this history? Do we need to do something that actually talks about this history justly? And so Peterson and his group has proposed renaming Faneuil Hall to Addicts Hall after Christmas Addicts, who was the first individual who died in the War of Independence, who was also African-American. And um, we know he's indigenous, some say Wampanoag, but that African-American indigenous roots as the first person who died for liberty. Mm So not um, foreclosing that history, not saying, or erasing history, as Mayor um, Marty Walsh said, that mm-hmm. if we change the name, we're erasing history. Mm-hmm. But Daniel Hall will still be that site, but they want to rededicate it to another important individual mm-hmm. in Boston history.
0: Right. Well, since you mentioned the mayor's uh, point, so that that's a point with a sort of, not necessarily the way the mayor makes it, but that's a point of a long intellectual history, right? Um, mm-hmm. In a way, at least dating back to uh, John Stuart Mill and on Liberty. And the general point there is that, I, if I understand it, the most generous rendering of the point is uh, if you um, sanitize public space from disturbing speech, as it were, right? Um, you uh, decrease people's attachment to the causes that they're defending. You create a future in which people don't even ask the question, right? So part of Mill's robust defense of free speech is that his famous term is, or a paraphrase of his term is that if you take offending uh, speech, and this is not exactly speech, it's an offending Public artifact, or whatever you want to call it. If you take that out, then the sentry falls asleep on uh, their shift, right? It seems like there's no enemy at the gate, there's nothing to worry about, and so on and so forth. Uh, So I take it that that's the kind of most robust version of uh, uh, the mayor's argument namely, we have to have this remain. Maybe we recontextualize, maybe we add plaques, maybe we add some kind of public uh, artwork, but we have to have the place continue to be named Daniel Hall so that it agitates people, so that it frustrates people, so that it offends people, so we never forget. What do you think about that argument?
1: So I, I have a couple issues with the argument. And first, let me say, um, give a more generous reading of um, the mayor's statements. So he said, in particular, we can't erase history, but we can learn from it. Um, but he also said in the following sentence that 30 years from now, individuals know, won't even know why we changed the name, Daniel Hall, to whatever. If it's Addicts Hall, if it's another individual, they wouldn't even know. Right. Um, but in terms of your Millsian argument, that if we erase these um, problematic or offensive um, speech, uh, monuments from public history, the watchmen will forget. But for me, if we look at the current history, of who's actually being offended well it's mostly minorities and people of color in the country that are offended at certain parts of history right. in, in terms of the offense it's a lot of historical arguments it's not saying that this is walking past this monument every day is offensive to me like this is upholding someone that owns slaves that is an argument being made but there is also deeper historical and philosophical arguments such as well these monuments are only showing one part of the history. Right. Like when people talk about Faneuil Hall, they're talking about the long history of it being the cradle of liberty, right. and only a small portion of it, and this was um, founded and due in part to slavery.
2: Right. But there's
1: no direct correlation between that liberty and slavery part. Right. And so I think what Kevin Peterson and the New Democracy Coalition and others across the nation are really arguing for is to actually look at that history justly to see the black side of history, to see how the history of this country was founded upon domination, was founded upon um, slavery. Yeah. But it also parallel has this freedom side. So how do we reconcile these two notions? Right. So what the New Democracy Coalition is proposing is simply saying, if we rename this Addicts Hall, what is loss? Right. Because you're still gonna have to talk about the history when you've learned about Addicts Hall about how it had a prior name yeah, and what that prior name symbolized and why they went through that change and so for me when we have these modifications of historical monuments or these renaming portions that doesn't mean that prior name gets erased in history right we'll have to learn about it
0: yeah you know dana part of what i hear from you earlier um is in a way it's not even clear that whatever the name is, is either an inducement for remembering or forgetting, right? So, you know, you kind of grow up next to in the shadow of this place and you don't pay any attention to the name. I get my American citizenship in it and don't think twice about it until this recent spat of discussions. So in a way, whether it's, you know, renamed Atticus Hall or whether it stays Faneuil Hall, um, it seems like something else has to happen in order to activate the million argument of people to stop and pay attention, right? Uh, in other words, it's not like you or I are walking down there one day with our kid and they say, oh, daddy, you know, who's this spaniel that this place is named after, right? It's kind of just part of the background scenery. Um, So what do you think about the argument? Um, And I know um, that I think this was what the artist in residence in the the city, et cetera, was uh, pushing for of not so much focusing on the name, but creating some kind of art installation in the place with a temperature reading that's supposed to sort of stand for the live temperature of a warm human body uh, that were uh, uh, sold, uh, bought and sold there, Uh, putting up plaques with context, Um, as a practical question of agitating and bringing up public memory, I guess what I'm asking is in this case and more broad cases, do you think it matters what you name stuff or do you have to go beyond that?
1: Well, I think for many individuals, what you name um, particular objects, especially when we are talking about public, like, I think we need a place in the, not in the background, right in the foreground, like, hey, these are public installations, public monuments, public works, public names. They were named in some instances, just in remembrance for the person who paid for it. Right. Faneuil Hall. Peter Fanuel paid for it. Right. Um, there's no deeper history simply because he died. We, we don't have that deeper history. Right. Um, or what his connection would be to the um, War of Independence. We, we, we can't see that because of his death. Right. But in terms of, like, naming, I think there does carry deep significance about who is being highlighted publicly in our history.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So for me, um, as well as you, we didn't know these names at all. Right. But for the individuals that do happen upon like, hey, why is this called Faneuil Hall? And right. you learn that background. Well, what are we actually historicizing? Why is that okay in the, called the cradle of liberty?
2: Right.
1: That it's named after a slave owner. Like, is that not a juxtaposition, a con- like a contradiction? Or is that, and to be honest, this is our nation's history. Right. And I think individuals in 2018 and going forward are really trying to answer that call of how do we deal with that history justly. Yeah. And so Faneuil Hall, if it gets its name changed or if it doesn't, or if we have more art installations that allow you to feel that, hey, this was built on slavery, that slaves passed through our cradle of liberty. For me, it's always a living process. And that's the real job of not only history, so in my work on monuments it's not really focused monuments aren't really focused on the event in themselves um, political communities impart certain messages certain meanings on these monuments so faneuil hall wasn't constructed as a cradle of liberty right it became that due to the speeches of individuals that were fighting for liberty and it's and it's held a place in boston's heart till today right And I think people still want to make reference to that history, but also show that there's a flip side to it. So the New Democracy Coalition, they're not saying that um, Sam Adams didn't make a great speech in Faneuil Hall, that John F. Kennedy didn't make a great speech at Faneuil Hall, Frederick Douglass, like all these important American figures, they made important speeches, but they're also political agents and fought for liberty here.
2: Right.
1: But there's a deeper history of also slavery and so now that we're in 2018 how do we bring that to the foreground how are we not hiding it now some individuals think a name change will be able to do that some people want more art installations but it's always going to be a living process about how we can see these two histories together
0: right right um
2: what
0: between those if you were sort of designing policy around this what would be what would be your inclination what would be your what would be your preference
1: in terms of like the art installation renaming right um i think for me i'm actually persuaded by peterson's group in terms of like changing it to add all. Mm-hmm. um but still not forgetting that this And in plenty of the speeches, like Theodore Parker's speeches, he constantly refers to not Boston as being beholden to Virginia in the South. He says, Faneuil Hall. Like, how could Faneuil Hall, the cradle of liberty, be beholden to slavery? Right. As an abolitionist, this is his argument. He's directly referring to the history of Faneuil Hall. Yeah. For me, if we change it to Christmas addicts, we're still imparting that there's a large history of Faneuil Hall in our city. But also, Christmas Addicts, the first person who died for the War of Independence, mm-hmm. who was African-American, and indigenous, and all that history being overlaid, what if we renamed Faneuil Hall Addicts Hall and actually talked about that history? Because a lot of individuals don't even know Christmas Addicts' name.
2: Mm, that's right. He's
1: the first person who died for liberty. Right. I think that that would be an amazing opportunity to not only give justice to the dual histories of freedom and um, slavery in our country right and also be a learning um environment for individuals
0: right so as i listen to uh there's at least two kinds of arguments going on right one is that there's something absurd contradictory about naming this keeping the name of this cradle of liberty as it were uh um being named after somebody who uh, made his money from buying and selling slaves. And the other one is that you also have a kind of political and historical opportunity to introduce um, a forgotten history, right? A a history that hasn't been named. And um, I, I hear both of those arguments. Um, And I, I find them very persuasive. I I wonder if there isn't a third kind of argument that I honestly never quite hear coming up in the debates around public monuments and uh, public uh, memorials, at least I don't hear uh, uh, very often. And that's the fact that, look, if you are an African-American man and you're making your way to work or to school from point A to point B, and you have to walk every day past a Faneuil Hall or past the statue of uh, 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 Lee or some other uh, uh, Confederate uh, uh, commander general, the phenomenology of that is troubling. I don't know exactly what adjective to use. Humiliating, troubling, intimidating, weird. There, There's something about the everyday experience, right? Every day, I walk in the shadow of X, Y, and Z. To me, that's a kind of argument or claim that needs to be put side by side, the usual liberal argument if you don't want to whitewash history, right? There's the experience of people who are living, actually, usually quite literally under these monuments because they're pretty imposing or grand or what have you. does that matter? I mean, I'm a white Israeli dude, so in a way, you know, I have my own version of this. But in other places in the world, right? Uh, so does that matter at all that there's also the sort of long-term grind of actually existing in a city center that has its main building named after Faniel and the main avenue that has a bunch of statues of slave owners on horses and so on and so forth?
1: Well, I think we do have to take that argument into account because individuals are still being affected to this day because if we're honest, the racial climate, there's arguments for and against, but if we can at least say that the racial climate has improved since slavery, that doesn't mean that it's a just situation, that the situation has resolved itself, that we have reconciled ourselves to the history of slavery in this country. So, for individuals, um, and I, I honestly haven't heard a lot of things about Faneuil Hall other than from the New Democracy Coalition about their um, embodied failings about having to go to a site that's a cradle of liberty and not see that contradiction. Um, but for instance, Silent Sam at the University of um, Carolina Chapel Hill, UNC Chapel Hill, mm-hmm. um, it was just torn down yesterday.
2: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: After a counter protest, and one of the individuals um, actually promised to wear a noose around his neck. Um, he's a graduate student in education because he's saying walking past this monument, he has to take different routes mm-hmm. because to physically walk past this monument to right. the silent Sam and the Confederacy right. is disgusting. Yeah, it's something that provokes a visceral reaction because it's a living history. Right, And I think one of the issues that we have in this country is that we don't deal with the living history of slavery and racism very well.
0: Right, yeah, I mean, I guess that's a very good way of putting the question, isn't the need to physically walk by these locations every day, part of a living history that you want to change, right? I mean, and that that, that just seems to be a very different order of argument, right? I don't want the experience of coexisting with this stuff imposed on me. And, you know, neither would you if you were in my place and your failure to see it or your fail- your insistence of making the arguments in completely rational terms. I mean, at least is possible to say to somebody like the mayor in a way is a failure of empathy. Um, so, you know, I, I just want to put that out there as a, Potential other, uh, other kind of argument. Um, so, Dana, let me ask you to put this for us into uh, a slightly uh, a broader lens. So, um, and the other prominent argument around the uh, public monument, and part of what's interesting about this whole Uh, uh, recent few months is that the arguments have been going around Confederate statues, as we know, but also around the names of uh, 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 landmarks and also around school names and street names. The other famous Boston argument from uh, the recent few months uh, or recent uh, uh, year has been uh, the argument around the owner of the uh, Boston Red Sox, so the first owner of the Boston Red Sox, uh, who had a, a very checkered uh, history in terms of um, racially integrating the team. Uh, some people here uh, accused him uh, of a racist history. He, at the same time, has a history of, uh, of philanthropy in the city the Street is also a major monument, right because people uh, come to Boston uh, to see the Red sox uh, and uh, uh, anyway, the name of the street next to um, next to Fenway Park, the baseball stadium was uh, finally changed back to its original name, uh, Jersey Street right mm-hmm. um, how do you um, How would you compare these two uh, and the questions that come up
1: here how would you um, how would you put them side by side? Well, I think um, when we comp- compare Yawkey Way and Fanuel Hall, and in both cases, they wanted to, um, proponents wanted to rename these sites. Right. So either for Yawkey Way, changing it back to Jersey Street was a way of still saying that Fenway is still going to be located next to this street. Yeah. But what is going to be the connection people have? Are they going to say, hey, meet me on Yawkey Way? and re- not realize that Yaki had some, again, both sides of the argument have argued that Yawkey wasn't really racist. Some people have argued that he was racist due to his policies, um, but without being bogged down in the intricacies of the arguments, it's Yawkey, for some individuals, had a problematic relationship with African-Americans, either from not hiring them, taking 12 years <laughs> To actually um, have a black individual on his team, mm-hmm. people took issue with that. Right. And they said, due to this racist history of Yaki, we shouldn't memorialize him. Now, with Faneuil, we, we just have his history of, yes, he was philanthropic like Yaki, but he also made a lot of money due to owning slaves. Now, owning slaves and not hiring black people are not the same um even if we can both call them part of racist operations. yeah now for me the interesting part is when we talk about yaki or when we talk about fanuel it's about our different conceptions and philosophical conceptions of what do we do when we memorialize or monumentalize an individual or an event now for some people it's just about looking at this history as well we're celebrating so the reason why people have issues with Silent Sam, Robert E. Lee, is because when we talk about there being a monument in a public space, some individuals see this as celebrating that individual. You're approving of this individual
2: right. in
1: all their actions. Right. Or you're approving them for his contributions and philanthropy for white individuals, even though he wouldn't hire black people or even though he owns slaves. Right. So it's that hidden celebration and um, uh, official stamp that gets conflated with a monument.
2: Yeah. And
1: on the other hand, we have more philosophical, historical arguments that really when we monumentalize, and this is Hannah Arendt's argument, that a monument is about remembrance to both our good and bad deeds. Yeah, It's a historical it's just remembering. And we have a lot of historians making these same arguments. And this is why a lot of historians, not all of them, but a lot of historians are against name changing mm-hmm. or against replacing or removing monuments. It's because no, we need an accurate historical record and this is our history.
0: Yeah.
1: It's Although, neutral in that sense.
0: Right. But, but if we take Arendt's argument seriously, then there's nothing against monumentalizing the Stalin and other monsters, right?
1: Well, that's the thing with, Han, with anything with Hannah Arendt is that when she um, really praises um, the treatment of the Trojan War. So um, Homer praised the Trojans as much as he did the Greeks. Mm-hmm. He had as much praise um, as Paris as he did Achilles. Yeah. He, he gave an accurate, or in, for our sense, it's a very poetic still, but he at least tried to capture right. um, these two competing factions. Right. And Arendt takes that to say like, when we look at American history in particular, slavery and freedom coexist.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, in other points, like in Eichmann in Jerusalem, she also says that reconciliation has a merciless boundary
2: mm-hmm. in
1: the sense that it's not revenge, uh, it's not forgiveness. It's saying that at a certain point, this ought not have happened. Yeah. When so We're talking about Stalin, totalitarian regimes. She pointedly states that, no, this is something that we have to draw a merciless boundary and say, this should not have happened. Yeah. Now she doesn't talk about monuments to Stalin, monuments to Hitler, um, but I think we can take from these two accounts that there's some contradiction, but also an active process that we have to decide about. And this is our, our instill to think what we are doing. Yeah. So as political communities, when we have these monuments, are we gonna have monuments to both our good and bad deeds in this country?
0: Yeah.
1: And how can we do that faithfully?
0: I mean, part of the problem is that monuments exist in public space, and for your average member of the community, the naming of a street or the naming of a statue uh, or the naming of a public gathering place, I don't think they conceive of this in the sort of complicated way of this is meant to float history. They conceive of it as this is meant to celebrate X, Y, or Z. Mm. Right? And, I mean, I think part of what's at issue with a position like Arendt's is this realization, right? That history is more complicated than the monument. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: That for many of us, we have checkered histories, right? Which include both awful deeds and better deeds. Mm -hmm. Maybe something like that is correct about Yaki, uh, with both a history of racism and a history of philanthropy uh none of that gets expressed in naming a street after him right Mm -hmm. or if we take a different like if we distance ourselves to you know a more famous example somebody like churchill with on the one hand his awful colonial history Mm -hmm. and on the other hand his heroic world war ii history now does a heroic statue of Churchill sort of, you know, sort of defiantly walking into the wind with his cigar, or, you know, all, all, all the other famous images of him. Do they capture any of that complex? I mean, is there even a way with the monument to capture any historical complexity?
1: Well, I think um, individuals um, that design monuments, really try hard, especially in our modern day, to capture that history. So the monument to the Vietnam War,
2: right.
1: that was very intentional. Like, how do we do justice to the complicated history
2: right.
1: of the Vietnam War right. and how it divided our country? And it, people still have divided feelings about that. Yeah. So how do we design a monument that can capture that
0: it seems, that, that's a great point. It seems like there's some conceptual poverty for us if we have to call both that and the statue of General E. Lee and uh, Charlottesville a monument.
1: Okay. Well, I think, I think, there, think there are, are different, different,
0: different things, right?
1: <laughs> what? I'd say that there are many different forms of monuments. And again, the statue to Robert E. Lee or these older statues are in a different time period. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're still standing today. So in terms of when we look back and say, history is always going to be complicated than monuments Mm -hmm. and monuments will always have this in a sense, self-referential tone that what they're referring to can be different in different places and times that they're not referring only to individuals and events, but also are constantly interacting with how the public thinks of this event, this individual, this monument. So when we have um, Faneuil Hall in 2012 or 2017, 2016, it's not that big of a controversy. People are still visiting the site, still walking the Freedom Trail. You're not having big opposition. But now that it's come into the public about what does this hall mean to us as a city? And Peter Faneuil, like, how do we reconcile his personal history his slave um ownership with the cradle of liberty idea and so for me when we have monuments when we have if you're not going to completely redesign faneuil hall um then it's really talking about like well with the name certain processes how can we deal with this history adequately hmm. and so even if right now past monuments they they don't do a good job of re, of telling both history how can we as political actors, political communities, um, and all these processes are democratic, um, except for the toppling of monuments. That's a that's a different form of democracy at work. Um, but some will call it vandalism. Some will call it vigilantism. Um, but either way, these are political communities coming together, telling us that the monument signifies something else, and we have competing ideas. Right. And so for me, it's always an opportunity to say, like, how are we gonna do this history well
0: right it's actually interesting to contrast some of the images yesterday from carolina with some of those famous images of the iraqis toppling the saddam hussein uh, statues in 2003.
1: so we celebrate one condemn the other Uh, it's always interesting how people relate to monuments because for the most part you can walk a past Daniel Hall, not care about it at all, mm-hmm. and now you learn a hidden history, a hidden meaning, and now it becomes important to us. Right. It becomes something that we have to judge, we have to think about critically, and see what are we to do.
0: Right. Um, so a couple more arguments that come up, uh, and that I'm sure that you uh, heard about um, in this context pretty uh, regularly which I think it's important for us to uh, touch on. One is the sort of retroactive judgment argument, namely that it's a little too easy in 2018 to export our contemporary moral judgment uh, uh, to a a period that didn't share those uh, uh, values. And so, um, for example, It's the sort of the times were different Mm -hmm. argument, right? Uh, The times were different when Yawkey was uh, making, uh, uh, running the Red Sox and uh, making uh, his decisions and so on and so forth. The times were different when Daniel um, uh, paid for uh, the erection of the hall. Mm -hmm. Uh, My uh, my old teacher, uh, David Lyons, know had a great answer one great answer for that and the answer was it's not clear how different actually people's moral sensibilities were abolitionism for example has a long history and people have thought that this was a serious problem for centuries uh, and we're killing each other over it Uh, so it's not that the rejection of slavery is a you know of the moral legitimacy of it is a new phenomenon um but what's your sense about the retroactive judgment of history that's involved in the renaming uh argument
1: well when we talk about renaming or in particular what are we going to do with monuments so whether renaming modifying them um keeping them as is or moving them i think all these are some political questions we're dealing with um in the modern day but when we talk about monuments i don't actually think about it as well how are we revisiting history and making uh, moral political judgments on communities and individuals i see it as how are we dealing with what are we publicly memorializing again because of memorializing in history are two different things. So we can look at the history of Yawkey, look at the history of Peter Faneuil or other founding fathers in our nation and make moral judgments about what they did and did not do. Did they support slavery um, or didn't they? We, we can make those moral judgments in an ethics class or in an ethics podcast. We can talk about the ethics of their decisions. But when we talk about monuments and what we're monumentalizing and memorializing we're talking about what are we putting in public right what is it representing because you're doing it in public we're not talking about a a history book or online resource or just teaching your students we're talking about this is a public act and what is the public significance of having this object up what is the public significance of even naming it yaki way in the first place right because it wasn't just Yaki Way was a philanthropist and owner, and it has ties to Fenway. There was a thought or instinct of like, when we do this publicly, we're saying something. We're giving him recognition, we're giving him celebration for the, for the things that they did to the city. So, what Yaki did to baseball in the city, But right. Peter Fanuel, his donation allowed this to be a meeting ground for um, revolutionary fighters, for abolitionists. But at the same time, I think when we talk about the public significance, we also have to talk about that publics are continuously evolving and changing. And right. publics, um, communities will always have different relationships to historical objects and events. Right. So if we erect something in 1913, it doesn't really matter the date. But if we erect something, um at that particular time period and say like this is in celebration of this individual well for that community a community erected it they had a public significance to erect it even though it's talking about history now as we look forward we didn't erect these statues we didn't erect these halls but as a political community that's still involved with them i think we do get a saying what are their? what is their meaning or is this something we don't want to have meaningful at all? So people could have made the argument that for Hitler or Stalin, hey, that's part of our history. We're going to keep their monument up. We're not going to sanitize. Like, this is part of our history. We don't agree with it, but that's foreclosing the fact that it has a public significance. Right. People have a relationship to these histories. And so when we're talking about slave owning and racism in this country there are a lot of individuals that have negative relationships to that. Right. And so when we talk about either Peter Faneuil or even go to the founding fathers, like George Washington, we can say George Washington is a great general. Um, we can even say great president, but we also have to reconcile to the fact that, well, how did he treat indigenous people? How did he treat African-American people? Cause that's equally a part of his legacy. Right. And I think people just, especially in this modern day, African-Americans and other people of color just really want this country and political communities to deal with that history accurately.
0: Yeah. And and in a way, then uh, in that response, you uh, bring up uh, another point, which uh, the president made in uh, response to this, namely the slippery slope argument, right? So the famous sort of where do we stop with this? Do we also remove the Washington manu- monument or change its name? And if I hear you correctly, it's, well, we don't necessarily remove or change its name, but we widen the scope to somehow allow for the discussion of that part of the history. However we do it, it might change from monument to monument, mm-hmm. but it, at least I guess what I hear you saying is we shouldn't be so worried about the slippery slope because a different way of talking about the slippery slope worry is that yes, we are opening up a larger spectrum of the history than we've been willing to discuss until now and we owe it to the people who've suffered under it
1: even though the slippery slope argument is usually taught as a fallacy or a fallacious form of reasoning mm-hmm. i think when we're talking about monuments in our history i think there is a worry about well, where do you stop given the facts of our nation mm-hmm. given the facts that even though we're a republic democracy um we're also a a colonial country mm-hmm. it's it's the same thing <laughs> um and so for me personally when we talk about our founding fathers, when we talk about George Washington, for me, as an individual that lives in political communities, social communities that just lives in the United States, for me, it's about seeing the monuments we have in place, seeing the political situations um, and since I work in some forms of indigenous scholarship, seeing the bad history involved in reconciling, like, yeah, we learn about the country's relationship to indigenous people, but in a a very poor way. And so when we talk about George Washington, I'm like, maybe we need to rename or rethink our monuments, especially to our founding fathers, because people in the United States don't really learn about, hey, this country is a settler colonial site till today. Mm -hmm. Like nothing has changed in this country since if we're using Battersea, the Pilgrims landed Mm -hmm. till today that indigenous people are still being deprived of their land and it's a colonial relationship mm-hmm. and without dealing with that history accurately and factually i think people grow up with poor histories with poor understandings both politically and historically and philosophically about how they inhabit the land and how they relate to people
2: mm-hmm.
1: so i was never upset with donald trump saying well, where do we stop if we get rid of this one monument? What about George Washington? Because mm-hmm. for me, I'm like, what about George Washington? Yeah. What about the settler colonial racism of this country that we haven't dealt with?
0: Yeah, there's, I mean, there's also a big span between getting rid of a monument and opening up a discussion about the mixed legacy of the people being monumentalized. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, the leap there isn't necessary um but then in this context and following up on this point that you make around these monuments exist in public space they're part of people's uh uh, public experience one objection is that's right and the risk that that raises is that you how should I put this? That you um turn these monuments into red herrings, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. that the discussion around those then becomes uh so monumental. Uh and in an earlier in an earlier um, podcast with uh Glenn Lowry of Brown, uh he brought up something like this. I hope I'm uh doing justice to what he said, but essentially um the Agitation and upset that is generated by the discussion of these high value high status high visibility spots is uh, so potentially explosive that you foreclose actual practical agreements that you can reach uh, on the ground so you end up you know exploding two discussions that say you don't respect my legacy you don't respect my legacy and even though you have a clear historical sense of which legacy is morally defensible and which legacy isn't moral defensible you still end up with a missed opportunity to communicate because you have focused on symbolic sites rather than actual agreements Do you... <clears throat> what's your sense
1: so I understand um, the point being made and where it's coming from about mm-hmm. it's, it's similar to arguments about, well, if we're focused so much on these symbolic monuments, then we're actually not dealing with policies and procedures like or laws. Like we're actually not changing things. Like if you change a monument's name, like changing Faneuil Hall to Addict's Hall is not going to improve um, racism in the country. Right. It's not going to be a fix-all. Um,
0: That's which, the argument. Yeah, and or it might make it worse. I guess is also the argument.
1: Just, that's also a point because of the deep contention right. being put in place and deep divisions being right um, fostered. Um, but for me, this sense of what do we what what's actually going on in the ground? It's not happening alone. The individuals that are trying to change the name of monuments, like the New Democracy Coalition, is not called the um, Faneuil Hall Name Change Association it's the new democracy coalition and they're forming at the ground level or in the grassroots political communities they're forming ways of gathering people in communities to really argue for what they want this country to be and that's democratic and for instance for individuals that are fighting um or having deep contention over these monuments it's showcasing uh, almost in a sense a blind spot or a silence in this country. So for individuals that can't talk about the racism in the country, um, you, you can talk to them about a monument, about how they feel. And you'll get these hidden silences suddenly being talked about. Or with Faneuil Hall, that's a blind spot that I had that wouldn't have come up if not for individuals arguing for its, the change of its name. I wouldn't know about Peter Faneuil if people weren't trying to change the name of Faneuil Hall. Right. And so for me, when we look at our own conception of what democracy looks like, I think it can be agonistic at times, that individuals have deep disagreements. And I think we as political actors, as terrorists, um, as academics have to acknowledge that not everything that's on the political table, people are going to agree with or come to a common ground or common consensus. At the end of the day, they can be deep disagreements. And that's part of our political democratic process to say, um, at least with Hannah Arendt, since we've talked about her, no, reconciliation, that there's a merciless boundary for certain things. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to slavery, when it comes to genocide, when it comes to um, a lot of different issues in the country, we can say this ought not have happened.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And this should not happen for our current political disagreements. So we're talking about a statue to Robert E. Lee. I think individuals and African-Americans, if they had more political power, more political say, at the construction or dedication of a statue to Robert Lee, Lee would have said, no, (laughs) this would not have happened.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And so now that we do have more political voice and more political say so, we can say, no, the statue to Robert E. Lee shouldn't have been erected in the first place. That shouldn't be something we publicly celebrate. We shouldn't be celebrating someone that committed treason. Like that one, like from a who's a real American point of view, Confederates are seen as more American <laughs> than, certain, than slaves in certain contexts. Right. So for me, it's, I think there's always a, a gonna be, going to be a worry that when we, we're talking about anything racialized, it's going to be fraught in our country. Yeah, and it's gonna be bring up deep issues, but I'm like that's also part of our democratic process that people right. have deep disagreements, and sometimes you just have to choose a side.
0: Yeah, no, I I I'm I I hear you completely. The question of time is significant uh, on these things as well. I think the force of the argument that you just made uh, changes with how close or far we are to the beginning of a reconciliation process, if you want to call it that. So even though the moral force of your claim doesn't, so human rights abuses under Franco and Spain Mm -hmm. were bad after Franco died, and they're still bad today. Mm -hmm. If the Spanish had insisted about, uh, or on talking about those immediately in the beginning of their transition to democracy, they would have probably blown it up. And, you know, that there was a real argument for that. Mm -hmm. Part of the problem, and in a way that's analogous to what we're doing here is, all right, there was a sort of um, dirty hands, tragic kind of, justification for saying all right let's put these abuses aside and not engage in a process of transitional justice and coming to in terms of the past In you know 1980 spain because things are too raw but then people are still trying to say that right in 2018 or at least we're trying to say that until 10 years ago in spain and they were called out as you know you're full of shit that's that's just not true anymore Uh, or we can afford, we can now afford to take the risk. Uh, Or there is another set of injuries uh, and uh, uh, deprivations that have to be addressed. That is also poisoning our democracy. Um, So as part of the agonistic part of the sort of constant continuing management of conflict, it's almost like not as, not only is there a, merciless boundary on these processes of political reconciliation, there's, that's exactly what they are. They're a process rather than a result. Uh, they, 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 they don't come to uh, an end. Um, and going on some of what you were saying before, you're right that um, since these memorials are out in the community, The red herring argument goes both ways, right? Uh, In other words, I guess what I'm saying is specific sites are particularly powerful to people because they have a symbolic value. And as a result, manipulating those symbolic moments and places has potentially significant beneficial political results as well, not just significantly dangerous political results. So if you think about the famous sort of falling on the knee of uh, the German uh, Chancellor Willy Brandt in uh, 1970, where he kind of, you know, uh, falls on his knees and uh, apologizes for some of the uh, Nazi crimes. That's, you know, that's, that's a huge symbolic moment. And for many Jews in the world, that was a moment where they began thinking differently about the relationship with Germany after World War II. Um, that's the force that symbolic moments uh, uh, can have as well. So to me, the, I, I, I guess what I'm saying is to me, the red herring uh, argument doesn't take seriously enough uh, the political potential that symbols have to change how people relate to each other.
1: Yeah. And I would just add a further point that monuments are always symbolic, right. that these monuments, like if we do nothing with them, then they're still very powerful, symbolic objects. They have powerful meanings ascribed right. to them and communities are still living with them. Right. And so you're not really dealing with the issue by doing nothing. For me, part of the political process is seeing that, When we think of monuments philosophically and politically, we can see that even though they refer to a particular individual and event, that because they're public, that now means that their symbolic meanings are a public affair and that they change with these communities. Mm -hmm. Their symbolic meaning isn't just, hey, it's this one narrative. It's representing this one event. For instance, the Bunker Hill Monument, its symbolic meaning has changed over time. Right. The first is "Don't fire until you see the white of the eyes of the British." It was about Revolutionary War and independence, and it was supposed to be the Mecca of America. Mm-hmm. And then during the Civil War, is a site of reconciliation between the North and the South, bringing the countries together again. And now, um, in the 2000 project by an artist who projected images of slain um, individuals in the community it had a different meaning of, oh, don't fire till you see the white of their eyes, because it's dealing with gun violence. Hmm. And so we see that the symbolic meaning of monuments, when you look at them historically, you can see that when we talk about monuments, it's never just referring to a particular event, an individual. It's self-referential. And I'm taking this from Pierre Nora, a French historian's work, about how they're always referring, again, to their own symbolic meaning, and their symbolic meaning changes over time because they're public. Right. And once we have that understanding about what a monument actually signifies, then when we look out in the community and see that there's deep contention over them, we don't think of it as a trivial fear. We see people interacting with publicly significant symbols
2: mm-hmm.
1: and want to see how they relate to it. Because if they were trivial, we wouldn't have monuments in the first place in our own history or in the history of the world. Monuments means something to human beings.
0: Right, right, right. Well, I think that that's a perfect spot to, uh, to wrap this up because we uh, are running out of time. Dana, I wanted to thank you very, very much for uh, spending some time with us and for all the great work that you're doing on our public monuments project. Thank you.
1: No, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: All right.